okay. If I at some point either collapse or sit down, I'll give you forewarning, it's because my back right now is killing me. So pray for me, and uh, we'll trust God for that. I'm delighted to be able to start this series, and uh, this is an exciting one. So I want to ask, uh, so why, why a sermon series on the miracles of Christ, and why just the ones in John's gospel? He has the fewest of them, actually, which, you, which is, in light of his purpose, you would think he would have the most, but, um, well, for one, if we include all of the miracles and all of the Gospels, it would take us well into next year, maybe beyond that. Uh, so John narrows it down for us and gives us a good reason to study them because he presents them as signs. And as such, they become more than miracles and more than just the purpose of the miracle in and of itself. They become living parables in action that underline for us the testimony of John, and they teach us deep truths about Christ and reasons why we believe in Him. But more than that, they will help us know Him better than we think we do. And with his, this first miracle, and with His disciples, we will with greater clarity see his glory. And that's essentially where we'll be going with this one. So with this first sign recorded here in John chapter 2, let's see up close how the glory of Christ is revealed and its transforming power. So please pray with me before as we prepare to hear God's word. The Lord be present with us this morning and pour out your spirit into our hearts and transform our minds by your word that we hear this morning. It'll cause us to cling to you, cause us to be in awe of you. In awe of the fact that you are present with us and guiding us through this moment for your own glory. Christ's name, amen. So reading from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, 
do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who, drew, who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the disciples believed in him. We read earlier, uh, Joel read, that uh, near the end of the, uh, this gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John tells us why he chose these particular miraculous signs of all the numerous others that he had performed. And we'll read it again. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he was very particular in the ones he chose to communicate, the things he wanted us to understand about Jesus, to really see him glorified in a way that produces faith in him and assurance of eternal life in him who transforms our lives. It's, so I think it's no coincidence that um, this one particular sign happened at a wedding of all things, especially when he follows, when, uh, when he follows up toward the end of the ch in chapter 3 with John the Baptist introducing Jesus as the bridegroom. And in Revelation 19, John records the vision in heaven of the marriage feast of the Lamb and his bride. And goes on in later chapters, again, describing the appearance and the presence of the bride and the anticipation of the wedding of the Lamb. And against the Old Testament backdrop where God identifies himself repeatedly as the husband of his people. With that as a running theme through Scripture, it's no wonder that Jesus would be delighted to join in celebrating a marriage, especially when we consider that it was an integral part of creation that he initiated, that he took part of. And it represents his relationship to his bride. 
I can't even imagine the feeling that was going through him at that moment, knowing what he came for. What John the Baptist was so excited, being the friend of the bridegroom, to announce his arrival for his bride. And now he's at someone else's wedding. Just, you know. Oh. I want to turn that around. And uh, just imagine with me for a moment, just to get the sense of this. If you were like Jesus' mother, an important part of someone's wedding, maybe a relative or a close friend, what if God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the one who made all things and knowing that nothing has been made if he didn't make it. He showed up. And uh, there were a lot more guests that showed up than what you anticipated and you ran out of whether it was wine or dessert, not enough cake. What would you do? Or what would be your reaction if he supplied more than enough, enough for everybody to take some home with them? <laughs> How would that hit you? Well, what we see here in Jesus is a far cry, and in fact, an extreme contrast to the Pharisees, where he participates gladly in people's lives with grace and kindness and abundant provision of joy. You know, all through the scriptures, wine, and we won't even go into all those, there's a number of scriptures that just talks about the abundance of wine and even flowing down so much that you can't keep up with it all. And it, it expresses the idea of a blessing and of joy and of just abundance of God's provision. And so in some way, Mary could have said, we're out of joy. And Jesus satisfied that beyond imagination. In a way... This narrative is very simple and it's very straightforward and yet it's filled with lots of symbolism which some commentators I find get a little too carried away with and with varied interpretations of that, those symbolisms um, and saying more than I think John intends. I think John very deliberately was vague in a lot of things left a lot of things out and we go and we find we end up speculating and we don't want to go there. Since John presents this as a sign, again, as I said before, it naturally functions as a living parable <clears throat> in action. So it's best to interpret it like we would a parable. 
focusing on the main point and how any symbolism we find in it supports that primary purpose that John had in mind for presenting this sign. And we'll see that the sign actually draws our attention less on the miracle itself and more on Jesus, the one who performed it. So let's start and we'll walk through the narrative and pick up some of that symbolism along the way. Trying not to speculate. Trying not to fill in more than is there. Uh, before we get to the main point of the sign and what reveals, um, what it reveals to us about Christ. So it picks up three days after where chapter four uh, leaves off, where Jesus was collecting his first disciples. And apparently Jesus and the disciples <clears throat> had been invited to this wedding in Cana in Galilee, where Jesus' mother was in attendance, likely serving as a kind of hostess or a assistant uh, to the wedding party. Jim, John simply states, they ran out of wine. And since he gives no further details or explanation, it serves no purpose to speculate as to why. So then, the mother of Jesus, knowing how disastrous that can be for the family and the guests, the family could actually in that day be sued for such a thing, because this kind of hospitality is a pretty serious matter. And the guests would be pretty disappointed, especially since these things run for not just a day or so, but a week in many cases. And so Jesus, so uh, the mother of Jesus simply tells him, she didn't ask him to do anything. It's kind of implied. Jesus understands this, but she just simply says, they have no wine. <laughs> now, Jesus certainly knew his mother's heart. He'd read through that and why she came to them and what she must have had in mind. And after, as far as we know, she has never even seen him perform any kind of a miracle up to this point. But remembering what the angel had told her, and who she knew him to be, she very likely was hoping that this would be the perfect opportunity for him to reveal himself through a desperately needed miracle. But Jesus <laughs> has something else in mind. And I think they were communicating with each other better than what we understand in our culture. Jesus responded to her in a way that translators have had a really hard time interpreting, especially far removed as we are from their culture. And as much as we try to understand it, and there have been various ways that they've translated and interpreted it. Looking ahead, this is the same way that he addressed her from the cross when he entrusted her to John's care. Most agree that in saying woman, uh, what that, ha what the, uh, yeah, woman, what does 
that have to do with you and me. It is a way of distancing himself from her as mother. And then by adding, my time has not yet come, she understands that as woman, as hard as that is for her, you can imagine as his mother all this time, she understands that it is better in the long run. It is better to see her son now as her Lord and as the Savior that was promised. Now that time had come. And though it sounds abrupt and harsh to us, it was a sweet relief to her and better than what she had hoped for. And that's wrapped up in her response. So she understood in that moment he must be Lord over the hour of his glorification. He must also have total control over the situation at hand and how much of a glimpse of his glory that he will reveal. And then just like when she was a young virgin, she trusted her Lord, telling the servants nearby to do the same. Do whatever he tells you. I suppose that has implications for us. We do not know what may come next in our lives. We don't know what may come when we step out the door. Or why? But to do whatever he tells you is a good place to start. And we grow in that. And we're transformed by that. What's described next has strong implications for what we learn from this sign and what is represented here. Six stone water jars multiplied by their volume of 20 to 30 gallons each points us to the abundance that will be supplied. 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine for one wedding. (laughs) They had a few days left probably. The theological meaning has more to do with the original purpose of these jars and the new purpose that Jesus assigns to them than the fact that there were six of them, which a lot of people get into like crazy, and we're not going to go there. John tells us, for good reason, that they were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, for purification. Most all commentary most all commentators agree that this represents the old ceremonial law and the constant need for cleansing that never lasts. And that it has now reached its fullness. It's about the old covenant being replaced with the new covenant. It's about the transforming power of of Christ and the superiority and the sufficiency of the gospel. Leon Morris 
writing on this sign in his commentary on John says this. He says, this particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of the law into the wine of the gospel, end quote. The wine soon to be drawn out would represent the blood of the new covenant that does what the old could never do, cleanse us completely and permanently from our sins. Hebrews 4.10 tells us this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament system only hid. If you read it, if you go back and read what it said about what God does with our sins, it never says he washes them away. He always hides the sin. He covers them. But the blood of Christ washes sins away forever, once and for all, period. That's one of the things we're seeing here. So Jesus tells the servants to fill all the jars with water, and they do so, whatever, they did whatever he says, even filling them good measure to the brim. Filling them to the brim also leaves no doubt that what comes next is a real, genuine, miraculous sign that you cannot explain away in any other way since it is evident that all that is in there is nothing but pure water. So then Jesus instructs those same servants to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet who then tastes it, not knowing where it came from or that it had been just pure water. But what he tasted was the very best wine, top shelf wine, the world's, from the world's best winemaker. <laughs> I mean, what else can you expect from the creator, right? He was so impressed that he went and expressed this amazement to the bridegroom, noting that everyone Everyone else serves the good wine first and then the cheap stuff after everyone has had enough of their taste buds desensitized that they can't really tell. But he saved the best until now. Hmm. Implications of the gospel for the presence of God. Do you notice something here? John did not name a single person at this wedding as we went through this narrative. You notice that? He left out a lot of details. Pretty simple, straightforward. John did not name a single person except Jesus 
We don't even know whose wedding this was or their relationship to his mother or to the disciples. We don't know why they ran out of wine, though some have speculated they were too poor or just hoped to have enough to go around. He said nothing about the reaction of the servants who certainly knew what happened and nothing of the guests who must have been pretty delighted that they had plenty of wine. Where did that come from? Why is it so much better? So the whole focus here is on Jesus so that even the sign itself was secondary to the glory of Christ. As verse 11 tells us, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That gives us the heart of what this sign signifies to us about Jesus Christ. This is the living parable. Affirming what Nathaniel already believed. Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel just because he recognized him and knew what he was doing under the fig tree. And this sign follows what John first declared in chapter 1 and demonstrated it with quiet grace and generosity that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. They witnessed the Creator at work firsthand, demonstrating New creation. What else could have, who else could have commanded pure water to become fine wine, aged to perfection in a moment without touching it or adding anything to it? He didn't. As some have suggested, like speeding up a process. What process? From what? There's no components even remotely related to fruit or juice or grapes or wine residue that could be used to do any kind of processing in the water. It was filled to the brim with water. Now the Son of God, just like with creation, because He is the creator of all things, through Him all things were made and nothing was made apart from Him making it, and he stepped in, and he started from scratch, and he replaced the water with wine made from nothing but his own will. He spoke, and it happened. This is none other than the living word himself, of whom John says that through him, All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And that Jesus is the word that became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I want to back up a little bit. Early At the beginning, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That word with 
in the Greek goes way beyond what we think of as with. This with means something more than close proximity. They were so with one another that they were so in union. It was, I mean, it was like, you know, more than close, intertwined. And even their mind, even their thoughts, either intention and their purpose was together. They were with one another and they were on board with one another in everything. And this is who came into this world to be among us. The one thing John understood that is important for any of us to know who really want to know God better and know more fully what he is like should start with this simple truth that was on display in this sign. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only Son, is at the Father's side. He has shown us what God is like. And he did it here. Oh, he poured out that grace in abundance. Through, through Scripture, wine represents joy. As I said before, an abundance of life. And Jesus said that I came to give just that. The disciples saw that represented at the wedding feast by gallons. The Son of God the Son of Man, restoring joy and abundance. That's what he does in our lives. In this first sign, the disciples witnessed the glory of Christ on display, and they were the ones, and they were, excuse me, and they were the ones ultimately transformed by it. So this is where we will be continue, this is where we will be continuing to go, to see more of the glory of Christ in each of these signs. And in Him, the greatness and the beauty of God. And perhaps in some unexpected ways, we will be transformed by what we see. Would you pray with me? Lord, what a wonder it is that you take the initiative, that you come to us, that you do more than we ask or imagine, that you transform us more and more, that you Move us to know you and to believe in you and to cling to you because we are amazed at how we never stop seeing your glory revealed to us at every turn. As long as we 
cling to you and we stay close to you. Help us, Lord, to do just that. Throughout our lives. Pray in his name. Amen.